Let's begin reading in verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. In other words, Paul is saying here that um, what I've given you, doctrinally speaking, um, in this letter are things that I have gotten personally from the Lord. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft, circle that phrase there, as oft, as ye do it, or as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. In verse 24, for as often, circle that phrase, as oft, in verse 25, as often, in verse 26, as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. I wanted you to circle those things because I'll probably not get into this uh, at length tonight, but I was just asked last Sunday, I believe it was maybe last Sunday evening, uh, one of our men works with uh, uh, a gentleman whose church observes uh, the Lord's Supper or communion uh, every Sunday and uh, had told Brother Salvador that a church ought to do it every week. And so Brother Salvador was asking me about that and and I turned, I took him to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and showed, shared with him exactly what I just read to you. And I'll just tell you this up front, there is nowhere in the scriptures that we are instructed as to the frequency of the Lord's Supper. Paul said, as oft as you do it. In other words, he said, every time that you do it, whether that's every Sunday whether that's once a quarter, whether it's uh, bi-monthly, whether it's once a year as we do it. That is not the point. The point said, the Paul said, the point is that when you do it, be serious about it. And remember what it's about. Remember that it's about my death. It's about my body that, that is about to be broken. It's about my blood that was shed on the cross. Now, in a few days, we will gather as a church family to observe what Paul described in our text and what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Supper. We will observe it on the Tuesday, as we have for a number of years now. We will observe it on the Tuesday before Easter. Because that's when Jesus instituted it. Contrary to popular belief, 
the Last Supper did not occur on Thursday, and Jesus did not die on Friday. Listen, you can't have Jesus dying on Friday and being in the grave three days and three nights and have him coming out of the grave on the first day of the week. You just can't do that. Any, any, and, and I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to be mean tonight, but I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. You can't do that. You can't latch on to Catholic word I want uh, uh, the word um, slips my mind um, Catholic tradition and 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 just automatically think that it's biblical Jesus did not die on Friday Jesus died on Wednesday he had to have died on Wednesday in order to fulfill the scripture three days and three nights well you know I mean you, you don't have to take that literally well yes you do Yes, you do, because, and I'm way off track already, but Jesus was in the, in the grave like Jonah was in the belly of the, of the great fish for three days. So you, you can't just take that to mean partial days. Those were real 24-hour days. And you can't put Jesus in the grave on Friday and bring him out of the grave on Sunday and say that he was in there three days and three nights. You just, you just can't do that. Now, because it's the Lord's Supper, let's remember that tonight. It's not, it's not Bill Prater's Supper. It's not Fellowship Baptist Church's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. Because it's the Lord's Supper, then he should be the one to establish, I think you'll agree with this, it's his, so he should be the one to establish the guidelines as to where and who, the where and the who and the why of it all. And he has done just that in his word. He didn't just leave us uh, to fend for ourselves and try to figure this thing out our own and, and just fly by the seat of our britches and hope that, that one day it'll be found to be acceptable. Jesus has, has left us, God has left us guidelines as to the where and who and why of his supper. But unfortunately, there are those who have, for some reason, taken upon themselves and, and, and somehow they, they get the idea that, it's, that they have the right to change what God has established in his word. And so today, many have departed from the scriptures in their observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, there are basically three positions, not basically, there are three positions that are taken when it comes to the Lord's Supper. There is what is called open communion, which is open to anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter, there's... There's no guidelines, it's just whoever is present can partake. And then there is what is known as close communion. And that is uh, that it is restricted to those who are of like faith and order. And then there is, is what is known as close communion, which is what we observe at Fellowship Baptist Church 
and it is restricted to the saved and scripturally baptized members of a particular local assembly. Now listen, we don't do that to be mean. We don't do that to be hateful. As a matter of fact, every service that we have throughout the year is open to anybody and everybody who walks through those doors. Nobody's turned away. And even on the night that we observe the Lord's Supper, nobody's turned away. But it is the one service that I don't encourage folks to invite all of their friends. We choose, and we choose to do it from a biblical perspective, and we have a biblical basis for why we do it the way we do it, but it's, it's not something that is open to everybody. Again, what I was trying to say was it's the only service of the year that I don't encourage you to bring people. Every other service, I want you to bring people. Absolutely, bring as many people as you can. Easter's coming up in two weeks. Bring as many people as you can, especially your lost family and friends. It's going to be a very evangelistic event on April the 1st, and it's a hope you'll take advantage of that. But there is open, there is close, and then there is what is known as closed communion. By the way, we're not the only, in ch- only church in town who practices that. Uh, there are others um, as well. Now, as we go through this study tonight, remember, please, that it is the Lord's Supper. It is Christ who issues the invitation. And so it's not our place to expand the guest list. Have you, ever, have you ever planned something and sent out invitations and you get a text message like this? Hey, I hope it's okay, but I invited. And come on, be honest. You're thinking, well, if I wanted to come, I would have sent them an invitation. Huh? This is the Lord's Supper. So he issues the invitation, and we don't have really any right to expand the guest list or to ignore the way in which we, who are invited, come to his table. Scripture, listen, Scripture, the Word of God, not sentiment, not our feelings. Well, Pastor, I just don't think, again, I don't mean to be crude tonight, I don't don't want to be rude tonight and offensive tonight, but the, but the truth is, it doesn't matter what we think. What we think is irrelevant in this matter. What matters is what God says. And so we're going to try to look at it from what God says, because that's what must prevail. So let's look at some things quickly tonight. The Lord's Supper is restricted as to its place. This truth is best seen in our text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this chapter, we find the most detailed explanation of and instructions for the supper. Notably in verses 1 and 2 and in verses 17 through 34. And though we'll not read all of those verses now, I would encourage you to take note of the words and phrases that are used in verse 17 and verse 18 and verse 20 and verse 33. Look at those verses real quick. Verse 17, that ye come together. Verse 17, when ye come together in the church. Verse 20, when ye come together, therefore into one place. Verse 33, when ye 
come together. Four times uh, we see the theme of coming together. And this coming together is to be in one place, and that one place is actually identified as the church. Now, if for some reason we chose as a church that we were going to go out in this field and observe the Lord's Supper, then we could do that because we're coming together in one place. Does that make sense? doesn't necessarily have to be this, this building. That's why we don't uh, run to this hospital room and that hospital room and that nursing home and that nursing home and administer the Lord's Supper because it's supposed to be done when we come together in the church or as the church. Please note that they were to come together in a place that was distinct from any other place, particularly their homes. Look at verse 22. Paul said, what? Have ye not houses to eat or drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Look at verse 34. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. So uh, this coming together is to be in a place that is distinct from, from any other place. Notice also in verse 33 that partaking of the Lord's Supper was to be a unified rather than an individual observance. The obvious conclusion from all of that is that the Lord's Supper, and here's what I want you to understand, it is a church ordinance. It's not a Christian ordinance. It is a church ordinance. Look at uh, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember in all things and keep the ordinances as I have delivered them to you there are two ordinances one is baptism and the other is the lord's supper those are the only two ordinances that were handed down uh, by the lord that were taught and instructed and introduced by the lord himself now look at that verse again uh, verse 2 chapter 11 now i praise you brethren that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as i delivered them to you who is the you and the ye referencing well, Paul states in chapter 1 and in verse 2 of this book that he's writing unto the church which is at Corinth. At this point, it becomes necessary, I think, for us to affirm exactly what a New Testament church is. If I'm going to stand here and tell you, well, this is not a Christian ordinance, this is a church ordinance, then we need to have an understanding of what a church is what is a new testament church and and for the purposes of simplicity let let's let's say that a new testament baptist church is an organized assembly of baptized believers three words there number one organized that's not always us number two assembly and number three baptized believers so a new testament church is organized that simply means that the Lord's churches are structured according to a specific plan. And this plan is the one that is set forth in the New Testament. 
Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Faith, as I talked about this morning, uh, is what we believe. Order is how we function, and we ought to function in the way that we believe. Our faith and our order are distinguishing marks that set us apart as fundamental Baptists. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, each New Testament church was built and established upon apostolic doctrine. That doctrine was received from the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles and preserved for us to this day in the New Testament. Let me show you that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. And are built, talking about churches, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the apostle Paul prefaced his instructions concerning the Lord's Supper with the following statement, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So Paul followed Christ's teachings concerning the Supper as they were revealed to him. We read that in our text in the first part of verse 23. And he commanded the church at Corinth to do the very same thing. Paul then passed on these truths to every church in every location. These apostolic doctrines are universal, they're consistent, and they're timeless. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance, which is what I'm trying to do tonight. Timothy, he said, will bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul was saying this, my, the teaching that I received of the Lord and that I'm passing on to you has been consistent. I've taught the same thing everywhere I've gone. In every church, I've taught the very same thing. I haven't taught one thing here and one thing there. I've taught you the very same thing. And I'm sending Timothy to you right now to remember, bring to your remembrance the things that I have consistently handed down to the churches. It stands to reason that if the ordinance of the Lord's Supper was originally given to churches, then only New Testament churches have the authority to administer it and have no authority to change it or to modify it. The churches of Christ are not legislative bodies charged with devising new laws or revising old laws. No, no, we are executive, commissioned only to faithfully carry out the commands of Christ as given in the New Testament. Does that make sense? It's not, listen, it's not our right to legislate new law or to revise old law. This book speaks for itself. It doesn't need to be changed. It just needs to be obeyed. 
And that is our responsibility as a church. The legislative part has been handled by God. The executive part is up to you and I. It's our, our responsibility to carry out what has been handed down by the Lord. So a New Testament church is organized. It's also an assembly. That is, it's a gathering of people in a specific location. This is the meaning of the Greek word. If you have a strong concordance or a concordance of some kind at home, and you look at the word church, here's what you're going to find. The Greek word is ekklesia, and, and, and it, it, it means a called out assembly. It, and, and, and think with me here, an assembly of anything, whether it's the assembling of a church, whether it's the assembling of a community, whether it's the, the assembling of a city commission or a county commission or uh, the legislature, the assembling of anything must be two things. It must be local, and it must be visible. The idea of a universal, invisible assembly is nonsensical. Well, we're going to have a commission meeting. But if nobody is there, it's not an assembly. Does that make sense? I mean, you can't have an assembly that can't be seen. You can't have an assembly that doesn't assemble. I mean, it, it's, it, again, it's nonsensical. All, listen, all of the churches that are mentioned in the New Testament were local and they were visible. Just go down the list. Church of Corinth, church at Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Rome, the church uh, in Philippi, just go right on down the line, the church in Thessalonica, every one of those were churches that were local and were visible. And I labor this point tonight only because the prevalent teaching in Christendom is that of a universal, invisible, mystical body of Christ that is comprised of all Christians worldwide, and they've tagged it the church. But listen to me, that concept is absolutely, it has absolutely no biblical credibility. Again, and I don't mean to be mean tonight, but that's all derived from Catholic teaching. The word Catholic itself means universal. And I'm sorry, but I'm not going to take my doctrine from Catholicism. I'm going to take my doctrine from the Word of God. And nowhere in the Word of God are we taught that there's this mystical, invisible, universal body made up of all believers that is somehow called the church. You know what that mystical or you know what that universal body is called in the Bible? It's called the family of God. But the family of God is not the church. The family of God is the family of God and the church is the church. They are not, they are not one and the same. Every person who is born again, regardless of where they live in the world, is part of the family of God. But a church is local, and a church is visible, and it's something that, that is, is seen, and it's something that, that is, is assembled together. It is a, a called-out assembly. 
So the Lord's Supper is, is not a, a family ordinance. It's not a Christian ordinance. It's a church ordinance. And then one other thing real quick. A New Testament church is comprised of baptized believers. Acts 2.41, we've studied it months ago in our study of the book of Acts. And they that gladly received this word were what, church? Were what? And they that gladly received his word, what does it mean when they received his word? They got saved. They were saved and then they were baptized. And that very same day, there were added unto them, who's them? The church. The church at Jerusalem. It started at 12, it grew to 120. <laughs> in one day, it grew from 120 to 3,120. That would be a nightmare. I appreciate our growth, but I'm glad it's slow and steady. Administratively, that would be disastrous, but they pulled it off. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So this verse sets forth the two qualifications for church membership. Number one, salvation, and number two, baptism. And by the way, that baptism, if it's going to be scriptural and biblical, it's by immersion. It's a whole other message. Those who were members of the Corinthian church had been saved and scripturally baptized. We just, we just looked at that. We just saw that a couple of weeks ago when I preached from the first few verses of the book of Acts. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, notice, notice the order, believed and were baptized. When the Lord Jesus Christ instituted his supper, he, he did so in a, I believe, in a church setting. The only ones present with him were the 12 disciples who were also the first members of the first church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you just look, turn a page or two, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, and God hath set some in the church first, it says, apostles. So the first members of the first church were the apostles. These were uh, men who were prepared, that is, they were saved and baptized under the ministry of, of John the Baptist. They were the foundation stones of the first church. They were baptized believers who were organized. Matthew chapter 28, it's all throughout, all, it, it's in all four Gospels, but primarily we look at Matthew chapter 28. Uh, when we talk about this, they were baptized believers who were organized to carry out the Lord's work, which is number one, preaching the gospel, number two, baptizing those who get saved, and number three, teaching them the things that Jesus taught the disciples and the disciples have passed on down through the ages. We call that discipleship. These men carried forth their mission, and, and in the book of Acts, we read of how the church, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, grew to a size of about 120 people. So the Lord's church is a, the Lord's Supper, excuse me, is a church ordinance and is restricted as to place. It's also restricted as to participants. Church membership is not the only requirement set forth for participation. In the Lord's Supper, the Word of God not only specifies who may come to the table, but also how they should come. Look at uh, verse 27 of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, because some have partaken unworthily, for this cause many are weak, that is, they're sick, and some, he said at the end of verse 30, even sleep. That doesn't mean that they're taking a nap. It means that they're dead. They're dead. They died. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Again, there are several key words in this passage I think that we need to consider. Number one is the word unworthily in verse 27. What needs to be understood here is that the phrase, eateth and drinketh unworthily, listen church, that has nothing to do with an individual's worthiness. No one is or ever will be worthy in themselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. We are made worthy through Christ and his imputed righteousness. What that phrase has to do with is the way in which it was observed. And Paul is writing the book of Second of 1 Corinthians, he's writing this letter to set some things straight that, that had gotten out of hand in the church at Corinth. And one of those was their observance of the Lord's Supper. They were treating it as just another meal. I mean, they were treating it as a time of fellowship and a time of fun and a time of eating and a time of celebrating. And that's not what God intended. That's not what Jesus intended when he instituted the Lord's Supper. It was not to be a party. It was not to be a, 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 a fellowship meal. But they were coming together with that attitude and with that spirit, and they were not, look at verse 29, they were not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, they, they weren't taking it seriously. They weren't coming together as they had been instructed to come together to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were treating it as they would any other fellowship meal. And Paul said, no, that's not right. You have houses to do those things in. It's not a time to come together for fellowship. It's not a meal. It is a very somber, serious moment in the life of the church. And to treat it lightly and irreverently is to partake of it unworthily. And look at verse 28, the word examine. Let me show you a couple of verses from Mark, verses 18 and 19. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And began to be sorrowful, and say unto him, One by one is it I, and another is it I. So here Jesus is, he's implementing the Lord's Supper, and he tells them, One of you is going to deny me. And so they immediately began examining themselves. So right from the very beginning, Jesus uh, had the disciples examining themselves. Is my, and so as we come together, uh, 
for the Lord's Supper, we always have a time of examination, and we always want to ask ourselves this, is my life a betrayal of my Savior? Do my testimony and my actions betray the unity of the church which he loved and purchased with his own blood? And then look at verse 29. There's another word there, the word damnation. And understand this tonight, church. That does not suggest a Christian who partakes of the Lord's Supper unworthily is somehow going to lose their salvation and be condemned to a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. That's not what that word means. The word as it's used here means severe judgment or chastisement. Look at verse 32 again. But, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Listen to me. And again, this is another message all in itself, but it is a serious thing to be chastened by the Lord. If you don't believe me, look again at verse 30. Because they were not discerning the Lord's body and were treating the Lord's supper flippantly, God chastened them, God punished them, and some of them were sickly and they were weak, and some had been chastened so severely that they were dead. The Lord's Supper is a serious thing. And partaking of it in a wrong manner, with a wrong attitude, a wrong spirit, is very serious. And so we ought to remember that when we come together. The Lord's Supper is extended not simply to church members, but to church members who are in fellowship with the Lord and in fellowship with their church. Then number three, the Lord's Supper is restricted as to its provision. The Bible specifies the elements to be used for the Lord's Supper. And there is no room, listen, there is no room for modification or accommodation to suit the whims or the fancies of men. Paul states in no uncertain terms that the Corinthians were to keep the ordinances exactly as he had delivered them to them because the way that he delivered them to the Corinthians is the same way that they were delivered to him by Christ. And so let, let's talk about that uh, for a moment. The two elements of the Lord's Supper, of course, are the bread and the cup. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. Let's talk about the bread for a moment. Rainbow bread won't cut it. No, seriously. Just zester crackers off the shelf, they're not going to cut it. There are some very specific requirements for the bread. It must be unleavened bread. That is, it must be made without yeast or other leavening agents. I have some pastor friends who make their own bread. We purchase the, the, the bread, but it's unleavened bread. You say, well, preacher, why is that so important? Why is that a big deal? Because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, leaven is a picture of sin. It's a picture of sin. The bread represents the sinless life of the Lord Jesus. And, to, and so to use bread with leaven would be to, to distort that picture he had no sin and the cup 
The biggest issue when it comes to the cup is whether or not the contents are to be alcoholic wine or grape juice. Well, preacher, does it really make a difference? Well, yes. To be frank, yes. And honestly, a simple study of the Word of God, there should not be any issue at all. Because the Bible is very clear when it comes to the element in the cup and that it needs to be grape juice. So we don't see that phrase in the Bible. Uh, we know that that's what it is for a couple of reasons. In every scripture passage referring to the Lord's Supper, there is no mention of wine whatsoever. You read the cup or you read the fruit of the vine. We're talking about in connection with the Lord's Supper, when you read about the cup, it is called the cup or it is called the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine is unfermented grape juice. Secondly, the process of fermentation, which is the process used to turn pure grape juice into alcoholic wine, is a process of, of decay requiring the action of yeast which again is a picture of sin the process of fermentation then distorts the sinlessness of christ just as using unleavened bread distorts the picture of his sinless life so does adding yeast or leaven to grape juice causing it to ferment though those two things are unacceptable there can't be any change unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And then the Lord's Supper is restricted as to its purpose. A writer named Davis Huckabee once wrote, and I agree, to substitute any other purpose than that for which our Lord instituted the ordinance is to corrupt it and make it nothing more than a mere formal ritual and tradition of man which neither honors the Lord nor edifies his people. Here's a really, really practical reason why we would never have the Lord's Supper every single Sunday, because it would be like anything else, it would just become a meaningless ritual. Now, I, I could be totally wrong in what I'm about to say, but you'll never convince me that anyone who partakes of the Lord's Supper every single Sunday does it sincerely and seriously, week after week after week after week. You'll never convince me that it doesn't become nothing but a meaningless ritual. Well, it's just what we do. I don't ever want the Lord's Supper to become a meaningless ritual. I want us to always take it very seriously and understand that we're doing this in remembrance of the broken body and the bleeding body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've taught you this before. There are two major corruptions when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to give you the, the big fancy technical terms here. One is called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. You go ahead and fast forward that next slide. Transubstantiation substantiation means this that upon the words 
of consecration by the priest, the wafer and the wine literally, literally, literally change into the very flesh and the very blood of Jesus. Well, preacher, that makes sense because over in John chapter 6, Jesus talked about drinking his blood and eating his body. You have to understand that Jesus is speaking there figuratively, not speaking literally. I mean, listen, just because some guy says a bunch of fancy words in Latin doesn't automatically change that wafer into flesh. And that wine into blood. But yet that is what is believed by, by some. And then some believe in what is called consubstantiation, which is the belief that Christ is with the elements to forgive sin and give saving or particular grace. In other words, you have to partake of the Lord's Supper every week to stay saved. Because Jesus doesn't necessarily become, this doesn't become, excuse mercy, doesn't become the flesh of Jesus. It doesn't become the, 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 the blood of Jesus, but Jesus is with these elements. He's with the wafer, and he's with the juice or the wine, and so you have to partake of Jesus often, or you may lose your salvation. So there's transubstantiation, and there's consubstantiation. Those are both erroneous teachings. The truth when it comes to the Lord's Supper, is that its purpose is fourfold, and here they are. Number one, to demonstrate submission. Note the words, this do ye, in verse 25 of our text, observing the Lord's Supper is a matter of obedience. Say, well, preacher, ah, whatever, it doesn't matter if I take the Lord's Supper or not. Yeah, it does. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. You miss the Lord's Supper, doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But we are commanded to observe the Lord's Supper. It makes a difference. It's a matter of submission. It's a matter of obedience. Number two, to commemorate the supper. The Lord's Supper is done in, in commemoration of the Last Supper. It's a memorial. Jesus said, this do ye in remembrance of me. And then the third purpose is to propagate the gospel. Look at verse 26 of chapter 11. Look at it again. For as oft for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. In observing the Lord's Supper, we are, in effect, preaching a sermon on the cross. And then to motivate the saint, I like the end of verse 26. It says, till he come. So if we are to continue to observe the Lord's Supper until Jesus comes, then that means he must be coming. But this time, as a songwriter wrote, the next time he comes, he won't have to die for me. The next time he comes, there won't be a Calvary. The next time he comes, we'll begin eternity. And when he comes again, he'll be coming for me. And so every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we'll do here shortly, we're remembering 
the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we're also remembering and looking forward. We look back at the cross, but we look forward to his coming. Because he is coming. Now, let me say this and I'll be done. We're not going to do an invitation tonight. That's why we're having a baptismal service this coming Sunday. And I understand Brother Mike is, is starting the, a new First Steps class. And, and in this first, first Steps class, he's going to be teaching about the importance of baptism and church membership and, and how you come into the membership of Fellowship Baptist Church. And, and um, obviously, with everything that's gone on, um, the last thing on my mind, honestly, and forgive me if it's bad on my part, but with everything that's gone on in our life, the last thing on my mind uh, was a baptismal service. But we are going to have one on the 25th. And you say, well, preacher, I plan to join the church, but I understand I need to go through this first steps class. Um, listen to me. If you have it in your heart to join Fellowship Baptist Church, and you want to partake of the Lord's Supper with us, then I would encourage you to talk to Brother Mike even after the service tonight. He'll be here in the auditorium, maybe in the foyer. But I'd invite you to sit down and talk with him or spend some time talking with him. And, and uh, if you need to meet with him this week, he'll set aside some time for you this week. And I know, um, I know that that's not exactly how we prefer to do it. We prefer for folks to go through the First Steps class to understand what baptism is all about, to understand that it's the door to the church and, and all of that. And, and he'll, inter again, introduce you to how you can become a member of Fellowship Baptist Church. And I understand all of that, but because of the nature of things, if that's in your heart, and you feel like that's what God wants you to do, then you get with Brother Mike, and he'll talk with you about those things. And, and so obviously you'll hear him twice. Uh, you'll hear him in the First Steps class as well. Um, but that's, that's why we're having the baptismal service. Uh, we normally have it two or three weeks prior. Um, obviously, we're not doing it this time, and, and I hope that you will uh, forgive us for that. But if it's in your heart uh, to become a member of Fellowship Baptist Church, then uh, we want you to do that. We'd love for you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us on uh, the Tuesday night prior uh, to Easter. Um, I don't have my uh, calendar with me. What's that date? March 27th, March 27th, it's on a Tuesday night, and uh, we'll assemble here at 7 o'clock, and um, if uh, you desire to be a part of that, um, you just let us know. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, church, let me talk.